CBD FX's CBD products are formulated to boost overall wellness and deliver calm vibes for daytime and nighttime use. CBD FX uses only organically grown hemp and all natural ingredients. CBD FX's best selling line of CBD products features wellness boosting CBD and legal Delta 9 THC gummies, oil tinctures, capsules, pens, and other products. Visit CBDFX.com today and use code Genius to get 25% off site wide plus a free CBD bath bomb with your first purchase. The code is GENIUS, G-E-N-I-U-S. Don't miss this special 25% off offer for Finding Genius listeners, only at cbdfx.com. Offer expires August 31st, 2023. Feel the difference with CBDFX. Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast, now part of the Finding Genius Foundation. I have a returning guest. Uh, he's a, uh, a polymath here in the field of chemical engineering. He's involved in a lot of super interesting projects, so many that uh, anticipate him coming back three, four more times. Uh, his name is Mark Holtzapel. He's a professor of chemical engineering at Texas A&M University. We've done two podcasts before. One was on uh, desalination, you know, removing salt from, from seawater. This one, we're going to talk about biofuels and a new possible type of uh, engine arrangement for a car that would get it uh, miles per gallon, maybe up into the 100 miles per gallon range. So welcome back, Mark. Thank you. Thank you. It's my pleasure. Yeah. Well, tell me uh, a bit about your biofuel work, and then we'll go into the more efficient engines. Well, I guess I'll, I'll start the story. When I was in high school, uh, we went through the energy crisis, and I was very interested in, in garbage, believe it or not, a high school student interested in garbage. And the thought was that, well, we throw the stuff away. It, it obviously doesn't have any value. But when I looked in it, it said, well, there's uh, paper and food scraps and all kinds of things in there that I think could be useful. So uh, that was one part of my thinking. And then uh, also at the time, we were paying farmers not to grow crops. And I thought, well, that's ridiculous. That means that we must have a lot more agricultural land than we need to grow food. And so I started saying, well, maybe if we uh, grew biomass and made it into fuels, uh, we wouldn't have to import foreign oil and have our country dependent on people that don't really care for us very much. So that, that set my career. I became a chemical engineer to try to figure out how to convert biomass into biofuels. And actually, I had to become a biochemical engineer. And when I was in school, I think there was one other student who would call himself a biochemical engineer. It was very unusual. And in fact, my advisor kept questioning, why are you taking all these biology courses? Because he hadn't seen that before. He was actually trying to discourage me, frankly, from, from taking the bio courses. But I, I persisted. And then I went to graduate school and found a, a wonderful a professor named Arthur Humphrey, who was trying to figure out how to turn wood into ethanol. And so that's where I did my PhD. So that was all in the, in the 70s, like 78. So I've been thinking about biofuels and how to make them uh, for a long, long time. Now, the, the original 
technology that we were pursuing was to take enzymes and put it onto the biomass, which would turn the biomass into sugar. And then once you have sugar, the logical thing to do was to ferment that sugar into ethanol. And because ethanol from sugar is an ancient technology that humans have, have been practicing for literally thousands of years, the Egyptians used to make beer. Uh, so, and of course, the Romans made wine. So the thought of turning sugar into alcohol, you know, is, is an obvious thing to do. And the, the problem is that woody materials are not very digestible. Always when we've made ethanol from biomass, it's always been either sugar, like sugar cane, uh, sugar beets, or from starch, like corn. And all those forms of sugar are very easy to digest. But well, one, one quick question. Could you ever make an engine that runs off of burning sugar? Or is that crazy? Well, in theory, you could. Of course, sugar is a solid. Uh, so, so rather than making it into sugar, you would just burn uh, the biomass directly. They actually did that in World War II. When in, in Europe, where oil and petroleum was kind of hard to find, people actually modified their cars to burn wood. Uh, they would put a gasifier on the tail end of their car and put wood in it, and, and that's how they got around. Uh, so in theory, you, you could do that, but it's certainly not convenient. And so the, the great advantage of a liquid like ethanol uh, is that you can pump it and regulate it to go into the engine so that your car, your engine starts and stops nicely and accelerates and all that kind of stuff. Where if you have these gasifiers, you know, they don't respond very quickly. And yes, you could get around, but I don't think you would be happy with the performance. Plus, they're quite dirty. What Another angle, I don't even know there's an angle. From what I've heard, you know, you can store propane in tanks. You can store various chemicals in liquid form, but gasoline doesn't seem to be able to be storable long term at all. Is there something that could be added to gasoline so it could be stored in tanks for longer or under easier conditions? I guess the component of gasoline that limits its storability is uh, double-bonded carbons, uh, so-called olefins. They, they tend to form shellac or waxes or they deposit onto surfaces. So if you wanted to create a, a gasoline that had a long storage life, you would just refine it so that you don't have any double bonds in there. I think I think you'd find that that would be are perfectly acceptable for, for long-term storage. Okay. But getting back to the biofuels, so would you say they're not digestible, digestible like an aerobic reactor uh, by bacteria or digestible how to a usable form? Yes. So, so you know, wood, which is really mostly cellulose, cellulose is a polymer of glucose, just like starch is a polymer of glucose. The only difference between them is one flip of a bond into the scientific jargon Starch has alpha linkages and cellulose has beta linkages. And that one flip of the bond makes all the difference because we know that as humans, uh, we can eat starch and, and thrive on that. Uh, but if somebody gave you wood and said, eat this, uh, you would starve to death because you can't digest it. Uh, so so the wood is designed not to digest. The, you know, Some trees are literally thousands of years old. And so the property of wood is that it's strong and does not digest. Uh, starch, on the other hand, is designed to digest. Uh, the starch commonly forms in seeds, and it's a readily available form of energy so that when the seed is below the ground, it has stored energy until it can make leaves and start photosynthesizing. Uh, so it's, it's really interesting that they're both glucose, polymers of glucose, but that one bond makes all the difference. Yeah. So uh, when, when you try to convert woody materials into sugar and then convert the sugar into ethanol, it turned out not to be as simple as, as people thought. The, what about um, growing vast tracts of certain weeds 
you know, the plants that everyone hates that seem to grow with no matter what you do to them. Would that be a, a possible solution instead of uh, corn for ethanol? It's really interesting that you mentioned that. About three years ago, maybe four years ago, uh, literally a, a rancher from Texas approached me and said that they have um, prickly pear cactus growing mm. in their ranches and that uh, farmers or ranchers pay lots and lots of money to kill it uh, yeah. and so they can raise cattle. And his thought was, well, what if we, if it wants to grow so well, why don't we encourage it to grow and, and actually have it be a crop? Uh, so he had lots of prickly pear. He was happy to deliver it to my lab. And we started playing with it. And my gosh, it, it's by far, by far the, the best crop I've ever looked at. It's phenomenal. Very easy to digest because basically a cactus is a bag filled with sugar. The uh, outer surface of cactus is mostly cellulose and the and the center of it is mostly sugar and water and so you just chop it up in a, in a food processor and and away you go it, it's phenomenal uh, so your idea is 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 actually very valid and, and our, our thinking is that if if we wanted to use prime agricultural land let's say where they grow corn in Iowa uh, and we say stop growing corn for food we want you to grow crops to make energy we know that food has a higher priority than energy does. Uh, so, so you're going to stress our ability to grow food, and people won't like that. CBD affects full-spectrum and broad-spectrum CBD products are formulated to boost overall wellness and deliver calm vibes for daytime and nighttime use. CBD effects is offering our listeners an exclusive 25% off, which I think is very generous, plus a free CBD bath bomb with your first purchase when you use the code GENIUS. Don't miss this special 25% off offer for Finding Genius listeners only at cbdfx.com. Offer expires August 31st, 2023. Feel the difference with CBDFX. Yeah, you know, especially right now, yeah, with Ukraine being offline and exactly. the happening, yeah. Exactly. Where, whereas prickly pear, it's an amazing crop. It grows from the southern tip of Mexico up into Canada. And almost every state in the United States, except for, I, I don't think it grows in New England, you know, so like uh, Maine and New Hampshire and Vermont. But other than that, you'll find prickly pear everywhere. And it's, it's this really hardy cactus, beautiful flowers, and they actually make a fruit that uh, tastes like watermelon. Uh, well, I've had them before, yeah, here in, uh, in Austin. Yep. Yeah, yeah. Pretty good. Uh, yeah, uh, people, people like it. They'll make it into wine and candy and all, all kinds of jelly. Uh, so, so it's an amazing crop. It, just as an aside, on the uh, coat of arms of, of uh, Mexico, there's an eagle, and the eagle is standing on a prickly pear cactus. <laughs> yeah. So in Mexico, prickly pear cactus is actually a staple. The, the tuna, the fruit, is widely consumed as like fruit juice and so forth. Uh, but they also eat the pads, the uh, kind of looks like a hand. In nopales. You're exactly correct. It's delicious. Exactly correct. So, so Mexico has tens of thousands of, of acres where they cultivate prickly pear, but that's not done in the United States. I'm not aware of any commercial prickly pear facilities in the United States. Uh, so we're actually pushing pretty hard. We've, we've put some proposals in uh, to uh, ask the government to help us learn how to grow prickly pear in the yeah. United States. And, and so, so the idea is that those of you that have been to Texas know we have a lot of crappy land. <laughs> I, I didn't grow up in Texas. I grew up in the Northeast. 
and and where I live in Texas is actually quite beautiful, but uh, but there are regions of Texas where it's it's just basically mesquite trees and and prickly pear cactus uh, yeah. growing kind of wild, uh, and and it's it's very marginal that they they don't have enough rain to raise uh, food crops. Uh, so 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 basically they they try to raise cattle, and it might take you know five, ten, fifteen acres to to support one cattle one cow or steer. Uh, so, so, uh, there's, in my view, there's a lot of underutilized land in Texas and, and throughout the central part of the United States, uh, it, the, the, uh, East coast gets lots of rain all the way out into maybe Iowa or so. But as you start going West of Iowa, you know, Nebraska and Colorado and so forth, the rain starts dropping, but prickly pear will grow because it's a cactus. Yes. So we could say, take the, 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 the center corridor of the United States and say, well, let's grow prickly pear cactus there and we can, we can make biofuels, we can make uh, industrial chemicals, we can make food. It's some, it's, I'm like a, an evangelist for this uh, prickly pear. It's the most phenomenal uh, crop I've ever seen because it, it, you know, obviously being a cactus, it doesn't need much water, but, but right. if, if you provide it with uh, nutrients and a decent soil, uh, it's as productive as any crop I've ever seen. It, it's, it, yeah, there's a myth that Cacti grow very slowly, but I've grown a whole bunch of them. And as long as you give them, you know, you don't want to overwater them, but if you give them what they need, they grow actually grow very fast. That's exactly the case with prickly pear. It matches uh, the best energy crops uh, that I've seen. But but the great advantage is you don't have to uh, treat it. Most most energy crops are woody in nature. And so you have to do what's called pretreatment. You have to kind of beat them up a little bit before they can digest. And, and that adds quite a bit of cost. It essentially doubles the cost of, of the feedstock. Uh, where the prickly pear, it's like you don't have to do that. You just just put it through a, a food processor, basically, and, and you're good to go. And when, once you've got it, it transforms into products really, really fast. Uh, so so I, like I said, I, I, I want to share with everybody how how excited I am by prickly pear. It's just it's just the most phenomenal crop. I'm I'm in my 60s. I've been working in this area since I was in my 20s. So you know that's over four, actually over 40 years. And I've only heard about this you know within the last three or four years of, of my 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 life. And so uh, uh, it's a big surprise to, to me. And it it's most uh, people in my field don't even think about prickly pear as a yeah. meat stock and it, it's you know really really exciting crop well why is everyone fixated on ethanol and on, on corn and ethanol is it well uh, I, is it just because so many people are looking at it they're like oh that's all you can do and they don't think about anything else or I mean, what do you think is the reason that people aren't looking for every type of i don't know if they are but they don't seem to be looking for every type of uh, biofuel possible regardless of what it is i think the the answer often in these questions is as people do what's easiest uh, so we already uh, have, we've been growing corn for, you know, hundreds of years. There's been a lot of uh, genetic engineering that's gone into it so that the yields keep going up year after year. Lots of farmers know how to grow it. We, we've, we you know, if you make whiskey or something like that, well, guess what? You start from corn. <laughs> so yeah. so uh, people know that you can turn corn and other grains in, into uh, alcohol. Uh, so it, it really just kind of made sense. And also, this is an interesting aspect of it. You know, a lot of people think it's really stupid to current, turn corn into ethanol. And I, I can sympathize with that perspective. But there is a logic to it that, that's pretty defensible. We know that on occasion, 
agricultural systems fail. There can be a drought. There can be a rust that goes through and kills the plants, you know, locusts, whatever. So you, the, the logical strategy that people would have is that why don't we have grain elevators and uh, fill the elevators with grain and then you know, maybe once every 10 years or whatever, we'll, we'll tap into those reserves uh, in order to get the grain out of there. Well, that means you have a lot of inventory. You have a lot of capital tied up in these grain elevators. The strategy- Well, so too, you got mice and all kinds of other creatures yeah, there eating it. It's getting fouled. Uh, you you, you nailed it. So, so how do you manage the inventory, all that stuff? So our strategy is we say, well, why don't we grow more corn than we can eat? Uh, and the excess corn- will go into to fuel. And if there ever is a drought or something like that, we just don't make the corn into fuel. We'll, the price of corn will go up. It'll be too expensive to turn into fuel. And we'll just shut those corn ethanol plants down. And that happens periodically, is, is the, the price of corn just goes up high enough and the plants can't make money, so they shut them down. And, and from that perspective, it's actually a fairly smart strategy to manage our food security. There's a reason for farmers to grow more food than we can eat, which is to make it into biofuels. It helps our balance payments by not having to import as much foreign oil. Well, we could also export too and, and make money that way and also help feed other people as well. Even if you don't want to go the virtuous route, at least you can potentially feed other people too. Absolutely. The other thing it has done is uh, raise the price of agricultural products because if uh, corn is uh, now has a market, a farmer can choose to grow corn or, our, let's say, uh, uh, soybeans or wheat or whatever. Uh, so if the price of corn goes up, then the price of those other commodities goes up. And then suddenly farming becomes uh, financially attractive. You know, what I just realized is, um, I don't know how this would apply, but, you know, for corn... You know, there's there's GMO corn, there's all these pesticides and herbicides and things like that sprayed on it in certain conditions. Um, if stuff's used for biofuel and we know no one's going to eat it, what does that allow us to do in terms of, uh, you know, keeping bugs and critters away and like maximizing yield to the, to the you know, as far as you can go? Because, you know, it's not going to be a food stock, so you're not worried about the food safety side of it. Well, that, that's, what a, do you do? that's a really good point. I, I'm not enough of an agriculturalist to say how much of a role that that plays, but you make a good point. They, they are trying to develop some corn varieties that have more ears per stalk. A single stalk doesn't get you very much. So they're, they're, they have some varieties that'll double or triple the number of ears that you can get. So, so yeah, you don't worry about taste. You don't worry exactly. about any of that stuff. It's that exactly. uh, you can engineer the plant very differently. Uh, you're, you're absolutely correct. Uh, so, so I, I guess getting back to this this ethanol story, one thing about ethanol is that it, it doesn't have a high energy content and it doesn't blend very well in gasoline. And and for those reasons, the oil companies uh, tend not to like it. It's kind of there because it has to be uh, from government encouragement, I'll use that word. But if, yeah. if the oil companies had their druthers, they probably would not put ethanol into fuel because it, it has water problems with water. It absorbs water and uh, you can't transport it through pipelines because it sucks water up. There's all kinds of issues with uh, with ethanol. So so our, our strategy is to say we're not going to uh, convert a biomass into sugar and then ferment it into ethanol. Instead, we make the biomass into organic acids, uh, such as vinegar, uh, which is two carbons, and then we can go all the way up to eight carbons. And hmm. the the way that we do that, many, many people are, have probably heard of biodigesters uh, where you put maybe manure in there or sewage sludge or something, and it makes uh, methane and CO2. And so what we do is say, well, wait a minute, where did that methane and CO2 come from? 
actually it came from acetic acid or vinegar. Well, the value of, of acetic acid or vinegar is about 20 times greater than the value of the methane and CO2. Mm. And so we say, okay, nature wants to convert uh, all kinds of biomass, nasty biomass, food scraps, um, as I said, manure, sl sewage sludge, uh, agricultural waste, all of it will go into this biogas, uh, methane and, and CO2. But if we could stop that last step uh, where the acetic acid is turned into methane and CO2, we could accumulate the acids in the fermentation. And what we learned through trial and error was that there are inhibitors that are very selective at stopping the methanogens that, that make the methane and CO2. And these organic acids accumulate in the fermenter. And so then the challenge was, well, how can you get those acids out of the fermentation? And then once you have the, those acids, what do you do with them? And so for the last 32 years, that's been the focus of my research is to answer those questions. Uh, how to make these organic acids at a, an acceptable concentration and rate and yield, and then how do you get them out of the f fermenter, and then how do you turn them into products that people want? There, there is a market yeah. for acids directly, vinegar as a <clears throat> but those markets are fairly limited. Uh, so, so can you transform those acids into uh, other products? And the answer resoundingly is yes. Uh, there's very rich chemistry out there that I can make. I've, I've made... Uh, gasoline, I've made jet fuel, we've made diesel fuel, we can make all kinds of uh, industrial chemicals like alcohols and esters. It's really cool. You were doing the same thing with desalination. You you know, you weren't just looking at getting the salt out, but all the other minerals, compounds and everything that could come from it. So that's a great idea. You can see the theme. Yeah, I'm, I'm fanatical about not wasting anything. <laughs> so, hey. so, so if, uh, you know, I, I look at a process and say, if somebody's calling it a waste, I want to call it a resource. And and so how can I use my engineering skills to turn what somebody would call a waste into a, an asset or a resource? And, and in a lot of ways, I mean, that's what the biofuel technology does. I mean, literally, we can take sewage sludge and, and municipal solid waste and turn it into gasoline and jet fuel. We, we've actually done it. We've made 100 liters of jet fuel that passed all the standards of the military. So, Wow. From we used uh, chicken manure, uh, food scraps from it from the dining hall on campus, and waste paper from the recycling center, uh, and we made it into we made jet fuel and about e an equal amount of gasoline by going through the appropriate chemistry. And, and so that that's what's nice about that is, as I mentioned before, is that uh, the oil companies really don't like ethanol, but they do like gasoline and they do like jet fuel. In fact, there's a lot of interest now in what's called sustainable aviation fuel. Uh, there's a, a general notion that we're going to electrify a lot of our transportation, and you see that with electric cars and so forth. But electric airplanes are probably not going to be the major way we get around, maybe short-haul flights, but you know, batteries just don't have the energy density that you have in liquid fuels. And so well, They're heavy too, yeah. Yeah, the batteries are just unbelievably heavy. Uh, so so uh, there's, there's a general consensus that we are going to need fuels into the future, liquid transportation fuels, no matter how much we electrify our transportation grid. Uh, you, you think about the uh, the heavy tractors, the earth movers and things, or the trains or uh, ships, long haul trucks. You know, if you try to have, you know, enough batteries for a long haul truck, you're basically your cargo is batteries and not yeah. not cargo. And so, so, so uh, I think there's always going to be a need for for biofuels or for fuels and uh, biofuels are 
the sustainable way of of making uh, liquid transportation fuels. You know, I, I've actually, you know, I, I do a lot of thinking about these problems, and I'm pretty green. Uh, I have uh, almost 20 kilowatts of solar panels on my house, and one would think, oh, you'd be very interested in in an all electric car because you could run your car on the the solar energy from your house, and it's like that's the last thing in the world I want to do, frankly. Uh, because I, I have range anxiety and, and I would worry about, can I charge this electric car? And then I'm always a very busy person. And, and I, when people say, yeah, you can charge the car when you're driving on the highway, but it takes 30 minutes or 45 minutes or whatever, that, that would frustrate me, frankly. So I, yeah. I would be interested in a... Well, uh, who has time for that, right? It was exactly. Like yeah. A plug-in hybrid to me makes sense where... <laughs> You know, maybe ninety percent of the time you're only going forty miles from home, and you could right. have a small battery. And then, but for the long trips, you have the engine, and you rely on fuels. So we're going to figure this out. My personal feeling is the average person, if you, if the government or somebody said you must drive an electric car, uh, I think the vast majority of people would not be happy. Uh, there, there is a certain segment of people who love them, and I appreciate that. But I think the vast majority uh, would probably not like well, unless unless the grids are upgraded i mean it's just going to destroy the grid even further well, like, look, look at the mess it's generating absolutely uh, so so as i've said to, for me what what i would consider doing is buying a a, a plug-in hybrid uh, where i can take the power from my solar panels and use that to drive to work or you know run errands go to the grocery store but when i have to go a long trip which i'm going to be doing this weekend i would use uh, the engine and and biofuels uh, yeah. in, in my view that that I love that idea. That makes a lot of sense. But all electric just terrifies me. I, I think people would be unhappy with it, and and they would probably be saying, you know, whose idea was this? This is this is awful. You know, the grid grid being unstable, and well, that's where everything's going. You know, and no one no one really gives the details of what's involved, the trade offs, the efficiencies, etc. That's it's a big worry of mine as well. It's like, oh, we have to do this, and uh, you know, I I don't really see much supporting data. So that, that kind of leads into what you mentioned, the uh, the engine. We call it a star rotor engine. Yeah. The, I was just about to bring that up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. so that we're both thinking the same way. So the the, cl- the engine that most people have in their call, car is called an auto cycle, commonly called an internal combustion engine. And they're maybe 25% efficient, 20% efficient, something like that. I think the Carnot limit is what, like 23%, the theoretical max efficiency? Oh uh, no no the Carnot limit is up around eighty or ninety percent depending on the time. oh really so we we could do way way better and, and that's exactly what the the star rotor engine does is it it says let's design an engine that is more like the Carnot limit than the uh, auto cycle there's there's uh, just a little diversion I teach thermodynamics so you have to excuse me on this uh, you mentioned the Carnot cycle so that's an engine that uh, is held up as the most efficient engine that nature allows. Uh, but there are two other engines that match the Carnot engine. One is called the Stirling engine, and the mm-hmm. other is called the Ericsson uh, engine. And so the the star rotor engine has a lot of similarities to the Ericsson engine. Uh, so so theoretically, uh, when you push it to the max, uh, we can get pretty close to the Carnot limit. And so we we believe that our engines in a car would be on the order of fifty to sixty percent efficient, and in a truck on the order of 60 to 70% efficient. And so that wow. that's you know, roughly you know, twice as efficient 
as as we have now. Uh, and then there's all kinds of things you can do to automobiles, have low rolling resistance tires, uh, low drag coefficients, lighten the bodies and so forth. And so I, I've done some estimates with the Precept, which is a General Motors concept car. If you put a star rotor engine in the Precept, it would get about 160 miles per gallon. So how, did, how does this engine work? Why is it so much more efficient? Well, uh, I guess there's Here's a simple explanation of it. Uh, I think most people know that the exhaust coming out of an engine is pretty hot. If if you think about the exhaust manifold on the car, which is the piping that takes the hot exhaust and eventually gets it distributed out into the air, uh, if somebody said, you know, why don't you put your hand on that exhaust manifold? I think most people would say, uh, you're crazy. I'm not going to do that because it'll burn me. Mm. So the, the the temperature of the gas coming out of an auto cycle and a diesel cycle is very, very hot. And, and basically all that energy, you're just sending it out the tailpipe and it's unused. Uh, so so the, the star rotor engine actually has a heat exchanger that, that captures that waste heat and puts it back into the engine and says, well, why don't you try again? You know, you, you didn't you didn't make it. You, we, can, we can never turn all of the thermal energy into work. Carnot does set a limit there. But it, it is okay to exchange the, the waste heat that would come out of the tailpipe and put it back into the engine and say, try again. So that I would say that's probably the major reason that the efficiency can be so high. Uh, and then a second reason would be the, the uh, compressor and the expander. All engines have a compressor and an expander. In an automobile engine, it's the piston. And I think anybody that uh, would, would think about doing this experiment, if you said, grab the shaft of your car engine and try to rotate it with your hand, most people would say you can't do it because the friction is so high. The, the piston rings and everything mm. uh, cause so much friction. Well, in a star rotor engine, you could you could spin it with your hand. It, it, there's, there's no friction. So this, that's, I guess, a, a second explanation of how we can be uh, so efficient. And then the the third explanation is there's a trick we can play where we spray atomized liquid water into the intake of the in, of the compressor, uh, which keeps the compressor cool, and, and that uh, improves efficiency greatly. So there's a, a number of tricks that we play, which I've just described, that make the engine uh, so much more efficient. So, hmm. so I said uh, we're, we're expecting, in the case of a car engine, something on the order of 50 to 60% efficiency and a truck engine, like a diesel truck engine, something on the order of uh, 60 to 70% efficiency. Yeah, that's crazy. Wow. Um, are there any prototypes made or like how is this technology known but just not in use or what stage is it at? Well, uh, I mentioned that all engines are a compressor and an expander. So uh, mm-hmm. we're so far focusing on building compressors and expanders to basically uh, become a profitable company making compressors and expanders. And then uh, once we you know, get to first base and, and become a profitable company there, then we'll have the resources to actually build an engine. There, there are some potential customers we inter- have been interacting with that are interested in turning waste heat into in electricity, and uh, we can do that. Uh, so so uh, they have these customers that we've been talking to do have resources. So we'll see if that develops uh, over time. That, you know, we're, we're in this interesting energy transition. I think I would say that people have been using that word for maybe the last five years or so. so. But the, all these technologies that I've been developing, the biofuels and the star rotor technology, I've been doing it for you know, 25, 30 years. In fact, the biofuels longer. Uh, so I guess I would say I've seen this coming decades in advance. So, so as, as the world kind of catches up and says, you know, we need to do things 
in a different way than we've done in the past. It's like, yeah, I know I've been thinking about this for decades and I think, you know, do it. Uh, so we could do this, we could do this, we could do this, we could do this. And so now it's a matter of uh, raising the money to actually turn those ideas into reality. Do you have a lot of interest in this idea on the, uh, the Star Rotor engine or? Well, yes. Uh, so the uh, I'll say on the biofuel side, uh, hmm. there's a, a company called uh, Bio Veritas that's in the process of commercializing that technology. They've committed over $100 million to, to build the first commercial plant. Uh, now, it, it, the first plant will not make biofuels. It'll make organic acids, which could be made into biofuels. But the, the as I mentioned before, the most valuable markets are food. Uh, so their strategy is to focus on making food ingredients first so that you can be profitable at small scale, get on that learning curve, and you'll learn how to engineer your costs down. So there's, as I said, there's been over $100 million committed to the biofuel technology. Uh, in the case of Star Rotor, in its life, maybe $10 million has been devoted uh, to to making it from an idea to reality. The engine will probably take $5 million alone just to build a prototype engine. So uh, we, we're kind of waiting until we have financial resources before we, we tackle that. But I yeah. You mentioned, is there interest in it? Well, yes, uh, students love it. I talk about it all the time <laughs> and and people are quite fascinated by it. It's just a, it, the challenge is to take it from an idea to hardware that people can actually use, that, that that's non-trivial. <laughs> right, yeah, no, it makes sense. Well, very good. Um, we'll have to have you back to, uh, to talk about the other 10,000 great ideas you have. But for now, where can people that are listening go and see not only these ideas and more info about them, but other things that you're working on? Well, if you're interested in the biofuel technology, BioVeritas, B-I-O-V-E-R-I-T-A-S, uh, like BioTruth, BioVeritas.com is the website so you can learn about the biotechnology. And then Star Rotor is S-T-A-R-R-O-T-O-R, one word, uh, StarRotor.com. You can learn about the Star Rotor technology. And, and the two really fit together because the star rotor engine is uh, so efficient, the amount of land area that you have to devote to making biofuels shrinks quite a bit. You know, the average car gets maybe 30 miles per gallon. If, if you have cars getting 100 miles or 150 miles per gallon, then the land area that's required shrinks quite a bit. And suddenly uh, this becomes quite practical. Uh, so I think what a lot of people don't appreciate is they'll say, oh, biofuels, well, they'll never be practical because you need too much land and you're competing for food. So, well, yeah, but if you're innovative, you can overcome those problems. So by growing prickly pear, you're not competing for food. In fact, you're creating new crops that could be used for food uh, yeah. and using land that, that's really underutilized right now. And if you, if you use cars that are powered by star rotor engines that get 100, 150 miles per gallon, then you'll be surprised at how small the land area you need to support this uh, sustainable biofuels. So I think the thing that maybe the you know, one message that I'd like to convey to people is that there's a lot of, I guess, fear, concern about global warming, the energy transition, that we're going to become poor. I know that we can't drive cars, we can't fly airplanes, we can't heat our house because of all these restrictions that are going to be placed on us to address global warming. And my response is that uh, as an engineer, I can I can solve all of those problems. Uh, they're eminently solvable. I agree, but that's my worry, is that it's just, it's hysteria without data, without calculations without trade-offs without 80 20 all of that so I, as an engineer i totally understand that uh, yeah but I, getting there I, is a problem. I believe that uh, we can have a future that's 
more glorious than the future that we have now in terms of abundance. I really, really believe that we, we can make this transition. Now, it's going gonna, it's gonna to take uh, effort, of course, investment and time. It's not something that you can snap your fingers and have it happen overnight. But I, I believe that humans have the ability to do this. We just have to have the will to do it. And, and I think that's, that's where I get concerned is that people know that fossil fuels have provided us with great wealth in the past, and they just don't think mm. that we can have a future without fossil fuels. And, and I, I'm sure we will be using fossil fuels for many, many decades, but I think we're going to wean ourselves off of them and, and go on to these alternatives. It will take decades. Uh, this is not the first energy transition we've gone through. Uh, the first energy transition was going from wood to coal, and then we went from coal to oil, and then we went from oil to natural gas and nuclear, and, and now we're going back to renewables. So uh, if you look historically, these energy transitions take about uh, four decades. Uh, so, so it's going to take decades to make this energy transition, but we can do it. We just have to have the will and creativity and drive to, to do it. We need to put the politicians over our knee and spank them with the, uh, the, <laughs> the cactus to tell them to stop so we can continue. Well, very good. Well, Mark, thank you again for coming and uh, looking forward to you coming back. I appreciate uh, all your great work and thoughts. All right. Well, I, I appreciate you getting the word out. And I'm always happy to, if people want to talk with me or correspond with me, I'm a professor at Texas A&M Department of Chemical Engineering. The name is Mark Holtzapple. And just look me up on the uh, directory and send me an email and I'll, be, I'll do my best to respond and answer your questions. Remember, before you go, check out CBDFX.com for the best in organic, all-natural CBD products, both for you and your pets. Boost your wellness today and get 25% off your first order, plus get a free CBD bath bomb when you use code GENIUS at checkout. That's code G-E-N-I-U-S. Don't miss this special 25% off offer for Finding Genius listeners only at CBDFX.com. Offer expires August 31st, 2023. Feel the difference with CBDFX. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.